For this lecture and the next lecture, we'll be looking at what we might call Quranic arguments for the prophethood of Muhammad. We call them Quranic arguments because the arguments are based on a claim made by the Quran. So the Quran itself is making an argument in these cases. When we look to the Quran for arguments, we find five. One, the argument from literary excellence. Two, the argument from doctrinal continuity. Three, the argument from internal consistency. Four, the argument from perfect preservation. And five, the argument from biblical prophecy. We'll examine the first four in this lecture and the argument from biblical prophecy in the next lecture. So let's begin with the argument from literary excellence, which we might rightly call the central argument for Islam. Muslims claim that the Quran is so masterfully written so brilliant and awe-inspiring in every detail, it could only have come from God. It's so amazing, no one can write anything like it. We find this claim in several places in the Quran. Now would be a good time to, uh, to look over these. Surah 52, 33 through 34, reads as follows. Or do they say, he has forged it? Nay, they do not believe. Then let them bring an announcement like it, if they are truthful. Surah 1788 is even clearer. Say, if men and jinn should combine together to bring the like of this Quran, they could not bring the like of it, though some of them were aiders of others. Now the challenge here is to bring an entire book like the Quran. But Muhammad was so confident he made the challenge even easier. In Surah 11, 13 through 14 we read, Or do they say, he has forged it? Say, then bring ten forged chapters like it, and call upon whom you can besides Allah, if you are truthful. But if they do not answer you, then know it is revealed by Allah's knowledge that there is no God but He. Will you then submit? So now unbelievers simply need to write ten chapters like the ones we find in the Quran. But once again, Muhammad makes it even easier. Surah 10, 37-38 declares... And this Quran is not such as could be forged by those besides Allah, but it is a verification of that which is before it and a clear explanation of the book. There is no doubt in it from the Lord of the worlds. Or do they say, he has forged it? Say, then bring a chapter like it and invite whom you can besides Allah, if you are truthful. And Surah 2, 23 through 24 agrees. It says, And if you are in doubt as to that which we have revealed to our servant, then produce a chapter like it and call on your witnesses besides Allah if you are truthful. But if you do it not, and never shall you do it, then be on your guard against the fire of which, uh, of which men and stones are the fuel. It is prepared for the unbelievers. So the claim is this. Each chapter of the Quran is so amazing it could only come from God. And if you want to prove that it's not from God, just try. Try to write something like it. According to Muslims, no one has ever been able to meet this challenge, and the Quran must therefore be the word of God. Muslim uh, scholar I.A. Ibrahim uh, writes as follows. Ever since the Quran was revealed 14 centuries ago, no one has been able to produce a single chapter like the chapters of the Quran, in their beauty, eloquence, splendor, wise legislation, true information, true prophecy, and other perfect attributes. Also note that the smallest chapter in the Quran, chapter 108, is only ten words. Yet no one has ever been able to meet this challenge then or today. Some of the disbelieving Arabs who were enemies of the Prophet Muhammad tried to meet this challenge to prove that Muhammad was not a true prophet. But they failed to do so. This failure was despite the fact that the Quran was revealed in their own language and dialect and that the Arabs at the time of Muhammad were a very eloquent people who used to compose beautiful and excellent poetry still read and appreciated today. If we put the Quran's central argument into the appropriate logical form, we get the following syllogism. Premise 1. If unbelievers can't produce something comparable to a, chapter, uh, to a chapter of the Quran, then it must be from God. Premise two, unbelievers can't produce something comparable to a chapter of the Quran. Conclusion, therefore the Quran must be from God. The advantage of putting the argument into this form is that we can examine these premises uh, separately to see whether they're true. If either premise turns out to be false, the argument is unsound, and the conclusion hasn't been established. Applying this method to the Muslim argument, we see 
just how poor the case for Islam really is. Consider the first premise. If unbelievers can't produce something comparable to a chapter of the Quran, then it must be from God. Now, this is a very strange challenge. Apparently, the Muslim criterion for determining divine inspiration in a text is the impressiveness of its literary style. Notice that this would be equivalent to saying, if you can't produce poems like T.S. Eliot or plays like Shakespeare or books like Charles Dickens, then you have to admit that these works come from God. Such a claim would be ludicrous, uh, but this is exactly what Muslims maintain when it comes to the Quran. To be honest, I simply can't make sense of the Muslim claim. Suppose a fan of Mozart comes along and says, Mozart wrote the greatest symphonies in history. And no one can produce anything like them, so he must be a prophet. I don't see any difference between this and saying Muhammad's poetry in the Quran is so wonderful, you can't, uh, you can't write anything like it, and therefore he must be a prophet from God. So the evidence that the Quran offers is uh, puzzling, to say the least. There just doesn't seem to be any clear connection between uniqueness of literary style and divine inspiration. So, even if the Quran turns out to be the greatest book ever written, I don't see how this would prove that it's the word of God, any more than the amazing symphonies of Mozart would prove that Mozart was a prophet. The first premise of the Muslim argument, then, is false, unless we're open to the idea that all of the world's greatest authors and poets received their works from God. And since one of the premises of the Muslim argument is false, or at the very least impossible to establish, the entire argument is to be rejected. We don't really need to investigate the second premise because the argument fails based on the failure of the first premise. Uh, but since the argument is so crucial to Islam, let's go ahead and see whether the Quran is really unsurpassable. In case you've never read a chapter of the Quran, we'll look at uh, a few examples. Here are surahs one 08 through 111. Surely we have given you Kalthar. Therefore pray to your Lord and make a sacrifice. Surely your enemy is the one who shall be without posterity. Say, O unbelievers, this is 109. Say, O unbelievers, I do not serve that which you serve, nor do you serve him whom I serve, nor am I going to serve that which you serve, nor are you going to serve him whom I serve. You shall have your religion and I shall have my religion. Surah 110, when there comes the help of Allah and the victory, and you see men entering the religion of Allah in companies, then celebrate the praise of your Lord and ask his forgiveness. Surely he is oft returning to mercy. Surah 111, perdition overtake both hands of Abu Lahab, and he will perish. His wealth and what he earns will not avail him. He shall soon burn in fire that flames, and his wife, the bearer of fuel upon her neck, a halter of strongly twisted rope. Here we have four chapters of the Quran. These are some of the short ones, some are much longer. But according to the Quran, any one of these four surahs we just read are far better than anything else ever written. Now let's be honest, is there anything miraculous here? Is there something so incredibly unique in these passages that it would compel someone to believe that the Quran is the word of God? No, there isn't. Uh, these are words that could have been written by just about anyone. In fact, the most unique thing about these passages is that they're extraordinarily unimpressive considering what is being claimed about them. Muslims may respond here, and they will, by arguing that these passages are English translations of the Quran and that the miraculous nature of the Quran can only be seen in the original Arabic. But there are several problems with this response. First, uh, what is Surah 108, for instance, in English? It's composed of several words, one after another, arranged to convey some sort of meaning. What is Surah 108 in Arabic? It's composed of several words, one after another, arranged to convey some sort of meaning. And that's the problem with this argument. Human beings can arrange words in any order we want. We can do this in English. We can do this in Arabic. So the it only works in Arabic defense just doesn't work. Uh, You'd have to say that human beings could not possibly put words in the order we find in these surahs, and that's simply false. So this argument fails in any language. Second, if the argument only works in Arabic, 
Very few people can even begin to, uh, to examine the central argument for Islam. There are nearly 7,000 known languages in the world. The evidence for God's existence works in any one of them. Look at the world, look at life, search your heart, God exists. The evidence for Christianity works in any language. Jesus rose from the dead, so you'd better listen to him. But all of a sudden we get to the Quran and we find an argument that can only be examined if you're lucky enough to speak Arabic. Indeed, even native Arabic speakers can't really investigate this claim because very few are trained in classical Arabic. And even those who are trained in classical Arabic generally aren't experts in Arabic literary styles. So it seems that Allah has given as his primary argument an argument that is practically useless to everyone, just about everyone who's ever existed. Third, everyone grants that something is lost in translation. But at the same time, a great deal of the content and style will remain. Many written works are still eloquent and powerful in any language. Consider the following chapter taken from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's words are outstanding even after being translated from the Greek. In fact, I would say that this passage is vastly superior to the chapters I quoted from the Quran. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, why did Allah reveal the Quran in a language that just can't be translated very well when his central argument requires us to be able to understand uh, the literary excellence of the text? Fourth, even people who aren't fortunate enough, enough to speak Arabic can investigate this claim indirectly because we can go to history and see how Arabic speakers have responded to the Quran. And when we do this, we find that many people from the time of Muhammad on have been utterly unimpressed by the Quran. In the early Muslim sources, we read about a man named Al-Nadir. When Muhammad was in Mecca, Al-Nadir used to follow him around. And when Muhammad would recite a passage from the Quran, Al-Nadir would say, I can tell a better story than that. Then he would recite some of his own verses and he would challenge the listeners and say, in what way is Muhammad's story better than mine? What was he doing? He was doing exactly what the Quran says unbelievers can't do. And later, when Muhammad was more powerful, Al-Nadir was captured and executed. That was apparently all the Muslims could do in response to his verses. We also know that one of Muhammad's earliest scribes left Islam because he became convinced that the Quran was not inspired. Abdullah ibn Sar used to write down verses as Muhammad recited them. According to Abdullah, quote, I used to direct Muhammad wherever I willed. He would dictate to me, most high, all wise, and I would write down all wise only. Then he would say, yes, it is all the same. On a certain occasion, he said, write such and such. But I wrote, write only. And he said, write whatever you like. Indeed, a portion of Surah 2314, quote, So blessed be Allah, the best to create, was written not by Allah or Muhammad, but by Abdullah. Yet Abdullah later left Islam because he realized that if he could write parts of the Quran or change parts of the Quran, the book couldn't be what it claimed to be. Modern scholarship also refutes Muhammad's claim. In his book, 23 Years, the Iranian literary expert Ali Dashti admits the truth about the Quran. Quote, 
The Quran contains sentences which are incomplete and not fully intelligible without the aid of commentaries. Foreign words, unfamiliar Arabic words, and words used with other than the normal meaning. Adjectives and verbs, and verbs inflected without observance of the concords of gender and number. Illogically and ungrammatically applied pronouns which sometimes have no referent and predicates which in rhymed passages are often remote from the subjects. These and other such aberrations in the language have given scope to critics who deny the Quran's eloquence. Gert R. Puin is the world's foremost authority on Quranic paleography. He says this about the Quran. The Quran claims for itself that it is mubin, or clear. But if you look at it, you will notice that every fifth sentence or so simply doesn't make sense. Many Muslims will tell you otherwise, of course, but the fact is that a fifth of the Quranic text is just incomprehensible. This is what has caused the traditional anxiety regarding translation. If the Quran is not comprehensible, if it can't even be understood in Arabic, then it's not translatable into any language. That is why Muslims are afraid. Since the Quran claims repeatedly to be clear, but is not, there is an obvious and serious contradiction. The great Arabic translator Ibn Warraq says this about the Quran. The style of the Quran is difficult, totally unlike the prose of today, and the Quran would be largely incomprehensible without glossaries, indeed entire commentaries. In conclusion, even the most educated of Arabs will need some sort of translation if he or she wishes to make sense of the most gnomic, elusive, and allusive of holy scriptures, the Quran. So we've seen two main problems with the argument from literary excellence. One, the argument doesn't make sense. We can't conclude that something is the word of God just because it's superbly written. The criterion just doesn't make sense. And two, even if the criterion did make sense, the Quran just isn't as wonderful as Muslims claim. So this argument fails on multiple levels. The amazing thing that uh, the amazing thing, again, is that this is the central argument of the Quran. This was Muhammad's slam-dunk argument. And yet, the ob and yet the argument contains two obviously false premises. This means that if Muslims want some evidence for the Quran, they're going to have to get it from a different argument. Another argument we find in the Quran is what I call the argument from doctrinal continuity, continuity of doctrine. According to this argument, we can know that Muhammad was a prophet because his teachings, his doctrines, line up with those of the prophets who came before him. There's one continuous message that's being preached by all of God's prophets. And since Muhammad is preaching the same thing, he must be part of this prophetic succession. Let's look at two verses of the Quran. First, we have Surah 42.13. The same religion has he established for you as that which he enjoined on Noah, that which we have sent by inspiration to thee, and that which we enjoined on Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, namely, that you should remain steadfast in religion and make no divisions therein. So the religion established by Muhammad is the same religion preached by Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. Muhammad was so confident that he adds in Surah 1094, but if you are in doubt as to what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. Look at what this is saying. If you doubt Muhammad's message, just go to the people of the book, Jews and Christians, and ask them if Muhammad's teachings line up with those of the prophets who came before him. Now, there's a massive problem here. Muslims are told to come to me to ask me whether the Quran is the word of God? And the short answer is, no, it isn't. Uh, it's not the word of God. It doesn't line up with Jesus' teachings. And yet the Quran says that it lines up with Jesus' teachings. Here Muslims will say, well, David, we don't care what you say. Your religion is corrupt. Okay, then why does the Quran tell you to come to an adherent of a false corrupted religion to gain your authority for, from the Quran? Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Now, let's consider some of the differences between Christianity and Islam. To examine this claim, how is sin dealt with in Islam and Christianity? Christianity believes that uh, because God is infinite, he's also infinite in his attributes. So if God is powerful, he's all-powerful. If God is knowing, he's all-knowing. 
Muslims seem to agree with this until we get to certain other attributes, such as God's love and justice. The error in the Muslim view becomes clear when we compare how these religions deal with the problem of sin. Human beings sin, and this presents a problem. If God is infinitely just, then he must punish all sin. But if he's infinitely loving and merciful, he wants to forgive us as well. So what's God going to do? If he sends everyone to hell, that would be just because all sin would be punished. But it wouldn't be very loving. And if God forgives everyone, that would be very loving and merciful, but it wouldn't be just. So what is an infinitely just, infinitely loving God going to do? What's the solution to this problem? Well, in Islam, the solution seems to be to limit and diminish God's attributes. So Allah isn't infinitely just or infinitely loving and merciful. He's not infinitely just because he doesn't punish all sin. If you turn to Allah in repentance, he can just sort of sweep your sins under the rug and never punish you for them. Now, you can call that whatever you like, but it's certainly not infinite justice. But Allah's love isn't infinite either. According to the Quran, God doesn't love all sorts of people. Allah does not love those who exceed the limits. Surah 2, 190. Allah does not love any ungrateful sinner. Surah 2, 276. Allah does not love the unbelievers. Surah 3, 32. Allah does not love the unjust. Surah 3, 57. Allah does not love him who is proud. Surah 4, 36. According to the Quran, God only loves those who first love him. And as William Lane Craig has noted, this sort of love is condemned by Jesus in Matthew 5. So the Islamic solution to the problem of sin is completely unacceptable. You can't limit God's attributes. But Christianity handles this issue quite differently. In Christianity, all sin will be punished because God is infinitely just. And yet God will forgive everyone who comes to him because he loves us. How's God going to do this? He begins telling us in the Old Testament. Muslims tend to think that Christians invented a lot of doctrines, but the Muslim view is simply false. Just about everything Christians believe can be found either explicitly or implicitly in Old Testament prophecies. Seven centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah said, our Lord would have a very special birth. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. In case this wasn't clear enough, Isaiah goes on to say that this child would be the mighty God. In Isaiah 9.6 we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. In chapter 53, we are told that someone would die for our sins. Isaiah says in verses 5 and 6, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Later in the same chapter, Isaiah prophesies Jesus' resurrection. Verse 10 says, If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If he becomes an offering for sin, he will prolong his days. So here we find in just one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament that a man would be born of a virgin, that he would be God with us, the mighty God, um, We're told that someone would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would die as a guilt offering for our sins, and we're told that he would rise from the dead. Did Christians invent these doctrines? Did Paul invent them? No, my friends. Uh, These doctrines were foretold by God long before there were any Christians. But we also know that these doctrines are true because of the evidence given to us in the life of Jesus. Muslims and Christians agree that Jesus was born of a virgin. So we agree that Jesus had a miraculous beginning to his earthly life. But Christians also believe in the incarnation. We believe that Jesus' virgin birth was a fulfillment not only of Isaiah 7.14, but also of Isaiah 9.6, which again tells us that the child would be the mighty God. Muslims, of course, reject the idea that God entered into his creation as Jesus of Nazareth, but no Muslim has ever given me a good reason for rejecting 
this doctrine. You see, if you reject the incarnation, you're saying one of two things. You're either saying that God can't enter into his creation, i.e. he just doesn't have the power to do so, or you're saying that God can enter into his creation, but he just didn't. If Muslims say that God can't enter into his creation, wow, then they're denying that God is all-powerful. We've already seen that Allah's justice, love, and mercy are limited. If Muslims tell us that his power is also limited, I'm going to start questioning whether they really believe in God at all. If you're a genuine theist, you have to say that God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. And so Muslims have to admit that God can enter into his creation. So whether he has entered into his creation will be a matter of revelation. And we've already seen that God told us in Isaiah 9, 6, that a child would be born who would be the mighty God. This truth is confirmed by Jesus himself. Jesus claimed to be the divine son of God. He claimed to be the, uh, the uh, uh, apocalyptic son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, who would rule forever and be served and worshipped by all nations. He claimed to be the great I Am, the name God used for himself in the Old Testament. Jesus claimed to be the final judge over all mankind. He said that he can forgive sins and that when people sin, they owe a debt to him. Jesus said that he can answer the prayers of his followers. He said that he is greater than the prophet Solomon, greater than the prophet Jonah, greater than the temple of God. He said that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of the prophet David. According to the Quran, Jesus' disciples were good Muslims. Yet we know historically that Jesus' followers worshipped him. Jesus was worshipped shortly after his birth. He was worshipped on numerous occasions during his earthly ministry. He was worshipped after he rose from the dead. And not once did he tell people to stop worshipping him. I ask you, how could any prophet allow people to worship him? John the Baptist, who was considered to be a prophet by both Christians and Muslims, said that he wasn't worthy of untying Jesus' shoes. Jesus' disciple John calls him God in the opening verse of his book. His disciple Thomas addresses him as my Lord and my God. His disciple Peter calls him our great God and Savior. The apostle John, the apostle Paul, and the writer of Hebrews unanimously declare that all things were created through Jesus. Christianity also teaches that Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus told his disciples in many ways, on multiple occasions, that he was going to be mocked, beaten, and killed. He also told them that his death would be a guilt offering for the sins of the world, just as the prophet Isaiah had foretold. All things happened just as Jesus and Isaiah said they would. Contrary to what we read in Surah 4, 157, Jesus' death on the cross is one of the best established facts of ancient history. Indeed, the only people in the world who deny this fact are Muslims who are forced to deny the clear evidence of history because of something Muhammad said more than half a millennium after Jesus died. We'll be looking more at Jesus' crucifixion in a later lecture. The point here is that the core of the Christian message consists of the doctrines of Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, and how God deals with sin. And Islam denies all of these core doctrines. Now, a Muslim can say, ah, Christianity is corrupt, but this misses the point. The Quran states that people can know that Islam is true because it lines up with the doctrines of Christianity and Judaism. But it doesn't line up. The Quran doesn't say, oh, Muslim doctrine would line up with Christian doctrine, if Christianity weren't corrupted. That's not what it says. Indeed, as we've seen, the Quran tells people to come to the people of the book for confirmation. And yet there is no confirmation. So this argument fails completely. Our next argument is the argument from internal consistency. The Quran appeals to its perfect internal consistency as proof of its divine origin. Surah 4, 82 says... Do they not then meditate on the Quran? And if it were from other than Allah, they would have found in it many a discrepancy. One of my translations of the Quran adds a footnote here. Yusuf Ali says, The Holy Quran, being of divine authorship, reflects a perfect consistency to all who are prepared to consider it carefully. The beauty, spiritual simplicity, and complete lack of error are, to those who look, 
carefully and with pure hearts a sufficient proof of its divine origin. So two claims are made. One, perfect consistency, and two, complete lack of error. We'll be considering the lack of error claim in other lectures. We'll focus on the issue of perfect consistency for now. Let's consider a few difficulties where it doesn't seem that the Quran is perfectly consistent. How long did it take Allah to create the universe? According to Surah 754, it took six days. According to 2559, it took eight days. What did Allah create first, the heavens or the earth? 229 says that the earth was created first, then the heavens. 7927 through 30 says that the heavens were created first, then the earth. Who was the first Muslim? 614 says that Muhammad was the first Muslim. 7143 says that Moses was the first Muslim. And yet the Quran also declares that Adam and Abraham were Muslims. The Quran tells us in 1047 that Allah has sent a messenger to every nation. Surah 2, 125 through 129 tell us that Abraham and Ishmael came to Arabia. They built the Kaaba. And yet Surah 2846 claims that Muhammad was the first messenger to come to the Arabs. According to Surah 448, committing shirk is unforgivable. Later, in the same Surah, Ayah 153, Allah forgives people for committing shirk. Surah 16.103 tells us that the Quran is written in pure Arabic, and yet there are many foreign words in the Quran. Surah 2.62 says that Jews and Christians don't need to fear because we will be accepted by God. Surah 385 says that the only religion accepted by God is Islam. What is man created from? 1967 says that man is created from nothing. 96, 1 through 2 says that man was created from a clot of blood. 2130 says that man was created from water. 16.4 says that man was created from a small seed. 15.26 says that man was created from clay. 3.59 says that man was created from dust. 11.61 says that man was created from earth. Will intercession be possible on the day of judgment? Surah 2, 122 through 123, 651, and 82, 18 through 19 say no. 2109, 34, 23, and 43, 86 all say yes. What happened to Pharaoh when he was chasing the Israelites? Surah 10, 92 says that Allah saved him from the flood. 72, 103 says he drowned. And of course, we have many abrogated verses in the Quran, verses that were later canceled by other verses. Surah 2, 256 says that there is no compulsion in religion. Surah 929 says, fight those who do not believe in Allah. Surah 415 says that the penalty for sexual sin is house arrest. Surah 24.2 tells us that the penalty for fornication is 100 lashes. In Surah 4.43, Muslims are clearly allowed to drink alcohol provided that they don't show up for prayer drunk. Surah 590 forbids Muslims from drinking any alcohol. We could go on indefinitely with examples like this. Now, I should say here that I wouldn't be too concerned about these discrepancies if it weren't for the fact that the Quran claims to have absolutely no discrepancies. Think about this for a moment. Muslims believe that the Quran is a perfect tablet in heaven. On that perfect tablet are the following three claims. One, the penalty for sexual sin is house arrest. Two, the penalty for sexual sin is 100 lashes. Three, there are no discrepancies in this book. That's a problem. Now, I think that with just a little creative interpretation, a lot of these difficulties can be reconciled. For instance, uh, creation from dust, creation from earth, uh, creation from clay. Those are all very similar things, so I don't think this is uh, much of a problem. Um, but a lot of them... A lot of them, Muslims are just stuck with them. Um, they can't really be reconciled. Um, and that's odd, considering that the Quran is supposed to be so obviously free from any inconsistency that people should accept it immediately as the word of God. This argument, like the others so far, fails completely. So let's move on to our next argument. One of the most popular arguments for Islam is the argument from perfect preservation. It's based on Surah 15.9, which reads, We have, without a doubt, sent down the message, and we will assuredly guard it from corruption. Many Muslims interpret this to mean that God would miraculously preserve the text of the Quran. I find it 
a little difficult to classify this as a Quranic argument since I'm not sure this is offered as an argument in the Quran. But since many Muslims interpret it this way, let's accept their claim. After quoting Surah 15.9, Mazar Kazi writes, quote, Muslims and non-Muslims both agree that no change has ever occurred in the text of the Quran. The above prophecy for the eternal preservation and purity of the Quran came true not only for the text of the Quran, but also for the most minute details of its punctuation marks as well. It is a miracle of the Quran that no change has occurred in a single word, a single letter of the alphabet, a single punctuation mark, or even a single diacritical mark in the text of the Quran during the last 14 centuries. I.A. Ibrahim agrees, saying that, quote, not one letter of the Quran has been changed over the centuries. If we state this argument formally, we have premise one. If a text is perfectly preserved for many centuries, it must be from God. Premise two, the Quran has been perfectly preserved for many centuries. Conclusion, therefore, the Quran must be from God. Now, it's certainly no miracle for a book to be preserved for 14 centuries. We have copies of the Bible that have survived longer than that, so a text has survived for longer than 14 centuries. The Dead Sea Scrolls have survived longer than that as well. Several writings of the Gnostics have survived longer than 14 centuries. So once again, we have an extremely odd claim. But whatever we think about the claim that perfect preservation implies divine origin, it's the second premise of this argument that we're going to focus on. I'll say here that I have absolutely no clue how any educated person who's done any amount of studying in Islam's early sources could say for a second with a straight face that the Quran has been perfectly preserved. Words have been changed. Phrases have been changed. Parts of surahs have come up missing. Entire surahs have gone missing. Muhammad's followers couldn't agree about which surahs were supposed to be in the Quran. But none of this seems to matter to Muslims. Surely it matters to the rest of us, though, because we're examining their arguments. Let me give you an outline of the formation of the Quran, and then we can move on to some textual difficulties. The first verses of the Quran to be revealed came to Muhammad in the year 610. Muhammad delivered many more verses to his scribes and companions for memorization and recording over the next 23 years. These verses were written on the stalks of palm leaves, on the bones of dead animals, on flat rocks, and on whatever else Muslims could find to write on. There was no complete manuscript of the Quran during this time. After Muhammad's death, Quranic revelation ceased. People who memorized parts of the Quran were called hufas. Shortly after Muhammad's death, the caliph, Abu Bakr, wanted to suppress a rebellion, and he sent many of these hufas to fight at the Battle of Yamama. A large number of them died, and so Abu Bakr realized that the Quran was in jeopardy. The people who had it memorized were dying off. He decided that it was time to collect the Quran into a single book, a single uh, codex, and he appointed a man named Zayd ibn Thabit to this task. After this codex was completed around 634 AD, it remained in Abu Bakr's possession until his death. Later, it was handed to Hafsa, a widow of Muhammad. No copies were made, and this wasn't sanctioned as the state's official Quran. It just sat in Hafsa's possession until the time of the third caliph, Uthman. During Uthman's reign, approximately 19 years after the death of Muhammad, disputes started arising in the reading of the Quran. So the caliph Uthman decided it would be proper to officially sanction one text and to destroy all the rest. He called for the codex that Zayd ibn Thabit had written, and he appointed Zayd to once again verify the contents. According to Muslim tradition, he advised Zayd to make changes where necessary, taking into account alternate readings. This was to become the final recension of the Quran, and copies of Zayd's Codex were then spread throughout the Muslim world. All other books and codices that, that Uthman could get a hold of were gathered together and burned. The Quran we have today is based on the text of Zayd's Codex as compiled during the time of Uthman. Now, was the Quran perfectly preserved? Think about what Ibn Umar, the son of the second Muslim caliph, said when he heard people declaring that they knew the entire Quran. He said, 
Let none of you say, I have learned the whole of the Quran, for how does he know what the whole of it is when much of it has disappeared? Let him rather say, I have learned what remains thereof. What does he mean when he says that much of the Quran has disappeared? Well, recall that many people who had memorized parts of the Quran died in battle. According to Ibn Abi Dawud's Kitab al-Masahif, Quote, many of the passages of the Quran that were sent down were known by those people who died on the day of Yamama, but they were not known by those who survived them, nor were they written down, nor were they found with even one person after them. So the passages were gone because the people who had memorized them were dead. This is consistent with many other passages in which sections of the Quran come up missing. In Sahih Muslim, number 2286, we read, Abu Musa al-Ashari sent for the reciters of Basra. They came to him, and they were 300 in number. They recited the Quran, and he said, You are the best among the inhabitants of Basra, for you are the reciters among them. So continue to recite it. But bear in mind that your reciting for a long time may not harden your hearts as were hardened the hearts of those before you. We used to recite a surah which resembled in length and severity, Surah Bara. I have, however, forgotten it with the exception of this which I remember out of it. If there were two valleys full of riches for the son of Adam, he would long for a third valley, and nothing would fill the stomach of the son of Adam but dust. And we used to recite a surah which resembled one of the surahs of Musabihat, and I have forgotten it. But remember this much out of it. O oh, people who believe, why do you say that which you do not practice? And that is recorded of your necks as a witness against you, and you would be asked about it on the day of resurrection. This shows that entire chapters of the Quran came up missing. And Abu Musa warns people, don't get hardened hearts and forget these chapters like we did. We also know that large sections of certain chapters came up missing. Muhammad's wife, Aisha, says that roughly two-thirds of Surah 33 is missing. Quote, Aisha, uh, Aisha said, Surat al-Azab used to be re recited in the time of the Prophet with 200 verses, but when Uthman wrote out the codices, he was unable to procure more of it than there is today. So two-thirds of this text are now missing. Zayd and Uthman just couldn't find all of it. Well, why not? As we've seen, many of the memorizers of the Quran had been killed in battle. But some of the passages have an even more interesting story behind their disappearance. Aisha tells us what happened to certain verses in, Surah, in Sunan Ibn Majah, 1944. It was, narrated to Aisha, it was narrated that Aisha said, The verse of stoning and breastfeeding an, an adult ten times was revealed. And the paper was with me under my pillow. When the messenger of Allah died, we were preoccupied with his death, and a tame sheep came in and ate it. So what happened to the verses on stoning and breastfeeding an adult? They're not in the Quran today. What happened to them? Well, according to the Muslim sources, Aisha's sheep ate them. That's why they're missing. We have another source uh, on missing verses from Surah 33. This one comes from Ubay ibn Kab, who was one of Muhammad's top reciters of the Quran. Here's what he said. Ubay ibn Kab said to Ubay ibn Kab said to me, "O Zir, how many verses did you count, or how many verses did you read in Surat Al-Azab?" Seventy-two or seventy-three, I answered. Said he, "Yet it used to be equal to Surat Al-Baqarah, and we used to read in it the verse of stoning." So the verse of stoning was part of these missing sections from Surah 33. Interestingly, Ubay ibn Kab believed that two surahs were missing from Zayd's version of the Quran. The Quran today contains 114 surahs or chapters. Ubay ibn Kab's version of the Quran contained 116, two additional surahs that aren't part of the Quran today. Muhammad's top scholar of the Quran was a, was a man named Abdullah ibn Masud. In Sahih al-Bukhari 3808, we read the following. Muhammad said, Learn the recitation of the Quran from four. From Abdullah ibn Masud, he started with him. Salim, the free slave of Abu Hadifa, Muad ibn Bajal, and Ubay ibn Kab. So ibn Masud is the first person you're supposed to go to if you want to learn the Quran. Interestingly, 
Ibn Masud didn't believe that three of the surahs in the Quran today are supposed to be there. According to Ibn Masud, surahs 1, 113, and 114 are not part of the Quran. Look at what Ibn Masud, again, Muhammad's top Quran scholar, says about Zayd's version of the Quran. This is from Jami at Termidi, 3104. Al-Zuri said, Ubaidullah informed me that Abdullah ibn Masud disliked Zayd ibn Thabit copying the Musahif. And he said, O you Muslim people, avoid copying the Mus'haf and recitation of this man. By Allah, when I accepted Islam, he was but in the loins of a disbelieving man, meaning Zayd ibn Thabit. And it was regarding this that Abdullah ibn Masud said, O people of al-Iraq, keep the Musahif that are with you and conceal them. For indeed Allah said, and whoever conceals something, he shall come with what he concealed on the day of judgment. So meet Allah with the Musahif. So these men, according to Muhammad's top reciter of the Quran, were not to give up their text of the Quran in favor of the new version by Zayd ibn Thabit, which is the text that we have today. And nor should they copy the version of of Zayd ibn Thabit. Let's look at something else Ibn Masud said about Zayd's version of the Quran. He says, The people have been guilty of deceit in the reading of the Quran. I like it better to read according to the recitation of the Prophet, whom I love more than that of Zayd ibn Thabit. Notice that Ibn Masud calls Zayd's version of the Quran deceit, and that Zayd's recitation was different from that of Muhammad. Again, this is according to Muhammad's top scholar. In Sahih al-Bukhari, again, Muhammad said, if you want to learn the Quran, go to Ubay ibn Kaab, go to Ibn Masud. And these are the people who are disagreeing and rejecting, uh, disagreeing with and rejecting Zayd's version of the Quran. Now, there are other minor differences that we consider. Uh, we can consider. We've looked at the large portions that can be uh, uh, disputed. And now we, have, we can look at uh, a smaller portion. Surah 2, 238, in today's version of the Quran, reads as follows. Attend constantly to the prayers and to the middle prayer, and stand up truly obedient to Allah. So we have one, prayers, and two, the middle prayer. According to Aisha, something is missing from this ayah. Jami at Termidi, 2982. Aisha ordered me to write a musaf for her. Musaf for her. And she said, when you get to this ayah, then tell me. Guard strictly the five... Uh, prayers, and the middle salat. So when I reached it, I told her, and she dictated to me, guard strictly the five prayers and the middle salat and salat al-asr, and stand before Allah with obedience. She said, I heard it that way from the messenger of Allah. So according to Aisha, phrases are completely missing from the Quran. The way that Muhammad recited them is not what's in the Quran today. Now, there are all kinds of examples like this. Uh, indeed, when Ibn Masud's Quran was compared with Zayd's edition of the Quran, there were more than a hundred differences in Surah 2 alone. A hundred differences in one chapter of a perfectly preserved text with no variants. Muslims try to explain this by saying that these were simply differences in dialect, but this is false. We see arguments even among people who spoke the same dialect of Arabic. Here's one example from the tafsir of Al-Tabri. Umar said, I heard Hisham reciting Surat al-Farqan and listened to his recital. On observing that he was reading many forms which the Prophet had not taught me, I all but rushed upon him as he prayed. But I waited patiently as, continue, uh, as he continued, and collaring him when he had finished, I asked him, who taught you to recite this surah? He claimed that the prophet had taught him. I said, by God, you're lying. I dragged him to the prophet, telling him that I heard Hisham recite many forms he had not taught me. The prophet said, let him go. Recite Hisham. He recited the reading I had already heard from him. The prophet said, that is how it was revealed. He then said, recite Umar. And I recited what he had taught me. He said, that's right, that is how it was revealed. This Quran was revealed in seven forms, so recite that which is easiest. So the variants in the Quran were not based on dialect, and yet, even according to our best earliest Muslim sources, there were various textual variants and so on in the earliest texts of the Quran, even during the time of Muhammad. 
And again, this can't be due to dialect. Umar and Hisham were from the same tribe and spoke the same dialect. So whatever the differences were, it had nothing to do with dialect. So what do we have here? The Quran has changed significantly over the years. Again, when we go to the evidence, we find that there were differences in words, differences in phrases, verses coming up missing, eaten by sheep, entire sections of surahs disappearing, and complete surahs missing. We find that Muhammad's top reciters of the Quran couldn't agree about what was supposed to be in the Quran. This raises an obvious question. What's the difference between a book that's been perfectly preserved and one that hasn't been perfectly preserved? Because if Muslims are right, there doesn't seem to be a difference. What are the characteristics of a book that hasn't been perfectly preserved? Well, there will be spelling differences, word differences, maybe some passages come up missing, maybe some disagreements about what goes back to the original arise. These are the characteristics of a book that hasn't been perfectly preserved. But the Quran has all of these characteristics. And so Muslims who are aware of the evidence, but who also want to maintain the perfect preservation of the Quran, have to say something like this. They have to say, yes, the Quran has all the characteristics of a book that hasn't been perfectly preserved, but it's been perfectly preserved anyway. And I just can't make sense of a claim like that. It's clear then that the argument from perfect preservation fails. In this lecture, we've examined four arguments from the Quran. The argument from literary excellence is flawed because it makes no sense to say that good poetry is proof of divine origin and because the Quran just isn't that impressive to begin with. The argument from doctrinal consistency fails because Muhammad's teachings were very inconsistent with the teachings that came, uh, the teachings of the prophets who came before him. The argument from internal consistency fails because the Quran just isn't very consistent. It contains all kinds of differences, and this comes from one person writing during one time period, uh, one lifetime. Uh, and what he says now doesn't agree with what, says, uh, what he says two years later. This doesn't look like perfect consistency. And the argument from perfect preservation fails because the Quran hasn't been perfectly preserved. These are some of Islam's main arguments. If you get a work of Islamic apologetics defending the Prophet of Muhammad, you will see these arguments. And yet they all contain one, at, at least one, obviously false premise. I don't mean something we really have to struggle with, is it true or false? I mean something that is obviously false, is with even a brief look at the evidence. And all these arguments, therefore, fail. Now, there's one more Quranic argument we need to consider, the argument from biblical prophecy We'll take a look at that argument in the next lecture.